That might be one of my new favorite songs. You have just sung a prayer of elimination, asking God to show us what we will not see until he does open our eyes and lay before us the truth of who he is and the path that he's called us to walk. That's why we're here. Uh, to, to sit before him, to come into his presence, to meet with him and he with us, and for those things to happen. There's a long passage that you will read in a few moments. But I've decided the best way to cover eight chapters worth of material is to walk you up a ramp into what I believe is the centerpiece of a story that God wants us to hear. As long as there have been campfires, there have been campfire stories. And you can imagine the voice of a young Hebrew boy or girl saying, tell us the story about Absalom. It might have been a campfire, it might have been the dinner table, but these stories are filled and this is a story that was told and it was anticipated. Because if you've heard it once, you want to hear it again. This is a story filled with intrigue, betrayal, murder, incest, rebellion, secret agents, and deep anguish. And it's a story that would have people on the edge of their seat and might take more than an extra log. Because it's a story. But it's a story that we need to tell and we need to hear because, as I mentioned earlier, it's a story that gives us a window into the reality of suffering in this world. You know, the Bible's not shy about that. It's one of the reasons that we find it speaking to us because we know what suffering is. But one of the things about the Christian faith is this unique that it, that it allows us to rise above that suffering while feeling every ounce of it. That's the Christian story. There's a way to look at the sufferings in this world, the anguish and the heartache and the distress that we're going to see in technicolor right here. But in a way that, that there's a story behind this story that unlocks the mystery of life in a fallen world. Eugene Peterson said, as a culture, we are a people impatient of a story, at least if it goes on very long. We prefer the anecdote, the soundbite, the slogan. We want digested truth, bare facts, information, whether doctrinal or scientific, and skip the mystery. But then he says this, but our impatience is a piece with our unwillingness to submit to the long processes of God's ways of working with us. That's true about me. It was true about David, and I'm guessing it was true of you. As we step into this, part of the ramp for this story is where we were last week. It was the sin of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, that, that conspiracy that David wove and that plot that he wrote to undo what he had done. And we're called attention to that. The text gives a lot of attention to it. That story is set up 
in chapter 10, it's recounted in chapter 11, and then it's condemned in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. So there are three chapters that end with a remarkably haunting moment for David. You'll remember when Nathan has convinced David coming through the back door, David, you're the man, and God is not through with you. But your infant son will die, and he did. And then these words, and the sword will never depart from your household. Those words are ringing in David's ears, and it doesn't take long to watch this story spiral downward to figure out what he meant by that. So for eight chapters, the story unfolds, and I want to give you a glimpse at a few of those before we get to our text. It's a story that's filled with, and you'll hear this as we go, tragedy, conspiracy, betrayal, a fierce clash of powers ending with a king in exile, abandoned and forsaken, whose grief is magnified by his guilt. That's what this story is, and that's why we want to hear it. So I'm going to give you the beginning of the story. It's a tragedy. It's Shakespeare-ish tragedy, and worse, where David's own sons, one Amnon and one Absalom, go at it after the older Amnon takes his half-sister Tamar and has his way with her. It's a tragedy. It's told in more details than you want to read. That's chapter 13. That's right on the heels of this. That event happens, and Absalom watches this and watches his father do nothing. He's, he watches his father David do nothing about this family incest. And he, David sort of looks the other way, and Absalom cannot. And so while the, he, he holds it in, and then eventually he goes after his own brother, and becomes executioner. He takes his own brother's head. David was crushed with sorrow about the previous event, and now he is boiling with fury. And so this division grows deeper between father and son, between David and Absalom, and, David, and Absalom wisely runs. He goes away. He goes away for two years. And then David's commander-in-chief, Joab, negotiates his return to Jerusalem, saying that the dust has settled, come back, this is where you belong. And eventually, several years later, Absalom returns to take up residence in Jerusalem with his father David nearby, but out of sight. David won't look at him. He won't talk to him. He avoids him. He goes the other way. He, he strategically avoids his son. That's the tragedy. But then the conspiracy begins because people are watching this and they see the father and the son and it's not working. And, and Absalom is a charmer. He is the darling of the media. He did what needed to be done and he is a part of the royal family and he is ga gathering people in his wake. So Absalom rises in popularity, and as he does, people gather around him and begin to talk about Absalom. This kingdom may one day and maybe should one day be yours. 
the revolt sort of grows from there, and it takes shape around two betrayals. Ahithophel, there's a name for you, Ahithophel. He's called the king's counselor, David's counselor, three times in this little episode. The king's right hand goes to Absalom now and begins to turn to Absalom and begin to convince him that he is the one. He is the one to whom the kingdom should belong. David is watching this, and he's watching his trusted advisor betray him. And then there's another trusted advisor named Hushai, who deceitfully goes to Absalom and pretends loyalty. And as he pretends loyalty, Absalom's suspicious about this, and he says, why would I trust you? And he eventually convinces, he's convinced of himself that Hushai is reliable. In fact, he's got two counselors now whispering strategic plans into his ears. Ahithophel's advice is pretty wise. He says, David is weak, he's on the run, go get him now. But Hushai, in a kind of a pretend sort of way, somehow convinces Absalom to wait. And he took the bait, he took the ploy, and by waiting gave David time to escape. And he did escape. One betrayal real, one feigned, but the result is a king on the run. It's a king on the run. David, he's a king, but he's not in control. He's got with him his servant and his personal bodyguards. There's confusion. There's an impromptu decision at breakneck speed to get out of here. He stops at the last house on the way out of town and lets his servants troops, troop past him. It's a pathetic group walking out of town, and it says David wept barefoot as he went, and the people with him wept as well. And what would not have been missed on the readers of this story is the route, the 26-mile route that David took from Jerusalem to another village, goes to the deep canyon of the Jabbok River, the same route that Joshua had taken two centuries earlier to take occupation of this land. That's the route that King David traipses, weeping barefoot, leaving a kingdom behind. But there's something that happened along that route that's noteworthy. The writer wants us to catch this. There is a place in chapter 15, you don't need to turn, but he says, David, on his knees, this, this news of Ahithophel's advice and, and the pursuit of Absalom has broken him. And he now is on his knees for the first time since he prayed for seven days that his infant son would not die. And now he's praying again. A lot of time has gone by, and this is the first account we have of David praying. And he says, O oh Lord, I pray you turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. That is what happened. It allowed him to escape. David was praying for the first time in a while. Isaac Bathsheba Singer, <clears throat> the Nobel Prize winning novelist, once said in a radio interview, I only pray when I'm in trouble but I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. David finally realizes the trouble that he is in, and he prays. And God hears that prayer, and he responds. Hold on to that. David prays, and God acts. 
but not yet. There's a fierce clash going on. The war rages. The, the upstart rebellious army is in pursuit of the king. And Absalom with the people of Israel, the armies of Israel, Joab as commander, are chasing after the king. And that's what we find when we come to the story the writer wants us to see most clearly. And I say that because this is where he spills ink and goes into detail in this episode about what he wants us to hear. And so we read. Second Samuel chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set them over commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself also will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the, gate, by the, at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ettai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. 
Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You're not to carry news today. You may carry news another day. But today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. And so he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as a people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. 
And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's a long chapter. But what you sense in that chapter, I hope, is the reality and the full display of a king who is in exile, abandoned and forsaken, whose grief is real, and it's a grief that is magnified by his own guilt. You, you, you can't miss this. Even if you know how the story ends, when you hear that narrative, when you read it, you heard, didn't you, several times, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. He said it, and it was repeated throughout the narrative. We're supposed to get that. We're supposed to to feel the weight of those words because this is is a king in exile, but this is a father. This is a father who's watched his family being ripped apart. This is a father who's watched a family being ripped apart, and he's hearing the words of Nathan. The sword will never depart from your house. And so David is on edge, hoping, maybe beyond hope, but hoping that somehow that sword was not intended for Absalom. He doesn't know that. Be gentle with the young man. Whatever you do, bring him back. David has just been catapulted from a comfortable throne, and now he's thrown into a harsh wilderness. Only days before the biggest shock of his life, when he learned that Absalom for years now, behind his back, had been undermining his rule, and Absalom was plotting all these years to kill his father and to take over his king. That is now dawning on David And he's beginning to see how deep and how profound this episode has turned out to be. While oblivious to it, he's asking his army to take care of his son. That's his concern. And then comes the news of his tragic death. It just it unfolds one piece at a time. And we're supposed to catch that about the shock and the delivery of this news. This is what the writer wants us to get. That when the news comes to David of of Absalom's tragic death, that we're supposed to pay attention. He doesn't spend much time on the details of a very decisive battle. He just sort of glitches over and says 20,000 men died. And the forest, the forest took more lives than the sword. What kind of wilderness is this? That, that men came to their demise just by trying to make their way through a forest filled with valleys and ditches and, and all kinds of hazards. But we get this news, and we get this picture when he hears, oh, that the enemies of all your enemies would be like that young man. Because what is unfolded before David now is the story about the eyewitness that watched Absalom's mule carry him under a terebinth tree or oak. It's a strong tree with hard wood and low branches. 
And there's this picture of Absalom suspended between heaven and earth. His head was caught in the bow. And what a picture for a father. Watch that story unfold before him. The agony of this whole thing is made worse because David recognizes that, that what has unfolded now, it wasn't just the tree branch. It was Joab and his armor bearers who put an end to this precious, dear life to David. And now David is undone. He is shattered. A son receiving the burial in a great pit of, under a heap of stones close to the spot he died. It's the common burial for a criminal. That's how criminals were put away. We read about David's anguish here in verse 33. We, we read that once he, he hears this nude, he walks away shaking as he goes. The word is he was moved. It's a shaking. There's a trembling. There's an, there's an anguish that is visible. He's visibly shaken as he walks away, not knowing kind of where to go, what to do, what to say. But these words, his anguish is made worse. His, his grief is inflamed by the reality that it was his sin. It's a little bit, un, it's not unlike the parent whose reckless driving ends up in the death of a child. How do you live through that? How do you face it? And that's where, that's where David is. At the city gate, he's gotten this news and now he walks away. Maybe, who knows, he, maybe this experience helped him as he wrote Psalm 31 where he says, My eyes are wasted with grief, my soul and my body also. My strength is gone. It wasn't the only time David hit that kind of low, but there was never a low this low, perhaps. But there's a story behind the story. One that we're supposed to get, and it's perhaps the story that we need to hear most clearly. You remember the storyline? I kind of ran past it quickly, but tragedy, conspiracy, betrayal, a fierce clash of powers resulting in a king in exile, abandoned and forsaken, whose grief is magnified by guilt. Ring any bells? Paul, tell us that story about Absalom. Oh, when the Apostle Paul sits down to tell this story that he would have known as a Pharisee, but now living in the light of the resurrection of Christ, tells a story of tragedy. A tragedy that began to unfold in the Garden of Eden. You see, Absalom was not the first brother to take a, his brother's life. When they heard of a brother taking a brother's life, it doesn't take much to connect the dots to Cain and Abel and others since. Tragedy, rebellion, maybe a rebellion like, no thanks God, I've got this. Maybe the defiant demand for autonomy that has marked the human race ever since the garden. 
And that includes me. Tragedy, rebellion, conspiracy. Maybe the conspiracy of religious leaders who saw their power being challenged and did everything they knew to do to take out one Jesus of Nazareth. Or maybe it's the conspiracy in my own head and heart, conspiring to keep God at arm's length. A story of tragedy, rebellion, conspiracy, betrayal. Some have referred to Ahithophel, that counselor that turned his back on David as the Judas of the Old Testament. Betrayal. A clash of powers. Not military, but more powerful spiritual clashes going on at the cross. Resulting in a king in exile, abandoned and forsaken, whose grief is magnified by guilt. There's a verse that uh, was not included in our text. <clears throat> I alluded to it a little earlier in chapter 17. You could look at this later. Verse 17, 14. Chapter 17, verse 14. Abruptly, but briefly, the narrator steps outside the story and makes an explicitly theological statement about the story. And it's this. God is quietly and behind the scenes sovereign throughout and within all the details of the story. You see, we read in verse 14 of chapter 17, the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm on Absalom. Now that may create some issues and some questions. It should. God ordained and commanded harm to Absalom? Well, think of it this way. The preserving of God's kingdom involves and requires the perishing of God's enemies. The preserving of God's kingdom involves and requires the perishing of God's enemies. And we could add to that, even if that enemy is the son of a king. And while we don't fully understand how all that works, we see a God responding to David's prayer. God, would you confuse his counsel? And God does so in order to undo and to disarm and to take out the enemy of the kingdom, even if that enemy is the son of the king. But there's one huge difference between the story that we've just read and the larger story behind it. Here, David sheds tears for his own grace and over his own guilt. Nathan's words echoing in his head and his heart. You've done this to yourself and to your family. But there is one. A king who was abandoned, who was betrayed, who shed tears of grief, magnified by guilt, but not his own. You see, when the Apostle Paul tells this story, he would say, 
Uh, but we are the rebellious. We are the defiant. We are the murderers, the adulterers, the conspirators. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you, but you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was a Christ, Jesus Christ, who wept tears magnified by his grief being magnified by guilt, but not his own. The guilt was mine and yours. And here we have a picture of a father, David, who's lamenting and anguishing over the loss of his son. This separation forever between a father and a son. But what we see on the cross is just the opposite. It's the anguish and the lamenting of a son who was separated, not forever, but for the first time ever from his father. And can't you hear a little bit in the anguish, plaintive plea of the, of the father, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom. Can't you hear echoes of Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're meant to get that as we sit on this side of the resurrection. As the, Paul, the Apostle Paul tells the story and reminds us, as Isaiah does, that when David says, if only I had died instead of you, there will be one who would die instead of us. Because Isaiah points us and says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. In, in like, as, as Absalom was pierced with, a, with, with three sword thrusts, our Savior pierced for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see, Absalom's death accomplished nothing. Christ's death accomplished everything. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, Isaiah tells us, you are healed. His wounds, his death, his sacrifice, his separation from the Father undoes that rebellion that marks the life of our lives in this world and sets in motion a story of redemption that you step into by faith. This story, you see, becomes our story, becomes your story by faith in the one who gave his life for you. For you who experienced the kind of suffering that David did. You know some of that grief that causes you to tremble. That, that ends up in a plaintive cry, God, do something. And the grand story and the good news and why we're here today is that he did. He heard David's prayer and he acted and he hears your cry and he acts and he comes to you. Where do you go with your sorrows, with your grief? Some of us land in despair because we have no hope. We grin and bear it. We, 
we cover it over. We learn to pretend. But God says that's not the right way. You don't despair of sorrows and griefs because there's one who bears your griefs and your sorrows. He comes to you in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that anguish, and he says, look at me. Because I'm carrying you. I have borne those with you. We need not despair. We need not try to distract ourselves because we don't have the ability to face those griefs and sorrows. There is something that this text in the grand story invites us to, and that is to come to Christ, to come right to Him, to the one who says, I bear your griefs, your sufferings. And what David felt is what you feel. <laughs> in a world that is without hope. But by my grace and mercy, in my kindness and my goodness, I have come into this world to come into the brokenness that causes people like David and like you to weep and to cry, to lament. To the only one who can do something about it the only one who has. And with the resurrection, he comes to you and says, I'm the one who has endured all for your sake. And there will be a day where there is no more suffering. And you enter that day when you place your life in my hands and in this remarkable drama of redemption that includes a son who was estranged from his father but who's united with his father and united with his father unites us to him by faith and as Paul says in Ephesians we are now we're made alive with Christ we are seated with him in the heavenly places Suffering in this world, yes, but it's a different kind of suffering. We can suffer, we can struggle, we can anguish, we can cry those plaintive pleas, but it's to a God and we, and we live through those because we belong to the one who carries us through and who has defeated our enemy's greatest weapon. That's the resurrection. That's how the Apostle Paul would tell the story of Absalom. I have a hunch. Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that you would open our eyes to the fullness of a story that we have just stepped into today. That we would begin to see that, that while there is brokenness in this world, it is a world that you have stepped into Finally and fully in Christ, you come as a redeemer. You come to us as we come to you with our griefs, with our sorrows, in our anguish. But an anguish and a grief and a sorrow that is made different by the resurrection. We come to you, Christ our King.
In his name we pray. Amen.